Welcome to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the radio show and podcast featuring your physician host, Dr. Tom McGovern. And I'm Dr. Chris Stroud, where we and our guests discuss relevant health-related topics from an authentically Catholic perspective. Today, our guest, who will be heard across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network, will be cardiologist and repeat guest, Dr. Dave Kaminskis, who will make hypertension more interesting than it even sounds. Well, it sounds interesting to begin with, but he'll make it even more interesting. But you're easy to please, Chris. But first, we're going to look at some (laughs) news, and specifically, we're going to look at the history of sort of blood pressure uh, in the world. You know, I was reflecting when uh, preparing this uh, topic who even got the idea of measuring pressure and who even knew that blood was moving around in the body? You know, apparently the Chinese, what they, they didn't tell us, back in 600 BC knew that blood circulated and was pumped by the heart. But did they tell us? No, no, they didn't. In the 13th century, the Arab physicians did figure out what they called the little circulation, you know, between the heart and the lungs. So at least they knew that much. But those of us from Western European descent, Nada. Now, up until the early 17th century, European physicians went with a guy named Galen, second century Greek physician. Apparently, medicine didn't have to uh, advance much in those years, Chris. (laughs) We're not known for advancing quickly. No, we are. Thought of medicine changes slowly over time. Maybe if women were physicians, they would have gotten there quicker. But no, (laughs) the hard-headed man, we just didn't get it. So Galen was, however, the first to identify the physiologic difference between veins and arteries. That was a plus. He also disproved a 400-year-old theory that arteries carried not air, but blood. I mean, did you know that the word artery comes from a Greek word meaning that which conveys air? I don't think anyone knew that but you. I don't think, and those, whoever wrote it on Wikipedia. Anyway, uh, Galen thought that blood was formed in the liver, traveled through the veins, and then delivered nourishment throughout the rest of the body and had to be continuously replenished. But he thought that bright red blood went to the brain to form pneuma. I guess that's a a Greek word meaning uh, breath or air or soul, or spirit. So the blood was consumed until 1628. William Harvey made the breakthrough in his little 70-page volume called On the Motion of the Heart in Blood in Animals. So when William Harvey published this, uh, he figured out the arteries and the veins. He couldn't figure out how they were connected, however. And that came only four years after his death, when Marcello Malpighi realized in between the arteries and veins there were the capillaries. You know, I don't know about you, but I remember learning that in medical school and being amazed how complex it was. It still seemed complex with all of the technology and the microscopes and the tissue processing that we had. These guys figured it out generations before we had any of that any of that technology. And uh, very limited microscope power, and they still figured it out. So anyway, so we know that blood circulates. Great. But who thought of measuring the, the pressure? Well, apparently the early Egyptians measured a pulse, but I wonder what it meant to them. I, I don't know. But so blood pressure medicine really didn't start until about the middle of the 18th century in the 1700s, which is surprising given the fact that certainly some physicians somewhere had witnessed blood spurting out of an open wound. Probably on the battlefield, they would see people being uh, stabbed oh. and such and blood shooting out of them, but nobody ever stopped to think, this blood must be under pressure. Well, so this, isn't that a song, under pressure? Anyway, so Stephen Hales was the one who figured it out. In fact, he was later said to have discovered something, blood pressure, more important than the discovery of blood. He did experiments with race horses and their neck arteries. And of course, most physiology labs of the time, at least his, was in a park under a tree. And under this tree, he lays down the horse and he gets a long, tall, straight glass tube. And he puts the tube into one of the neck arteries and sees the blood pulse up and down and measures, you know, the the millimeters above ground level that the pressure is with the heart. Fortunately, we don't have to do that with our patients today. I don't think they tolerate that very well. At least not mine. Maybe. No, I don't think yours. I don't like having my blood pressure checked, but I like it better than being strapped to a tree. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, they wasn't strapped to a tree. It was just under it in the shade. Uh, So anyway, in the 1870s, the first sphygmomanometer was designed using water-filled bladders. That's the fancy word for the blood pressure cuff hole unit thing with the the dial on it. 
And, and the current one was actually developed in 1896 and came over to the United States in 1901, courtesy of a famous American neurosurgeon, uh, Harvey Cushing. And he is the one that helped spread taking blood pressure uh, into North America. And so in our blood pressure, we usually have two numbers, right? Right, the top number and the bottom number. Yes, not the left number or the right number. No. No, the top is called the systolic for the pressure when the heart... Squeezes. Yes. And then the diastolic for when the heart... Relaxes. Oh, I like the relaxing part better. And you know, there were really no interesting stories, except maybe about that horse, uh, with blood pressure until the mid-1940s. When a president by the name of FDR came along... And suffered from this condition. It made it famous. He did. Uh, some of you who are into history may remember the Yalta Conference in uh, April of 1945, near the end of World War II. Well, when uh, Roosevelt was in the presence of Churchill, Churchill's personal physician noted in his diary that President Roosevelt, quote, appeared to have had signs of hardening of the arteries and had a few months to live, end quote. He was right. He was Actually, right. I think the conference was in February. I'm sorry. And he died in April, two months later, of a stroke brought on by hypertension. So really, his disease brought hypertension into the limelight. And then in the 1950s, more importantly... The insurance companies pick up the, uh, pick up the charge. And dun, now dun, dun. it became a standard thing when you see your physician to have your blood pressure checked. Yes. And who doesn't love being hugged on their left or right arm when they go in the doctor's office? So some key statistics from our Uber uh, public health officials at the Centers for Disease uh, Control and Prevention. One in three Americans, at least, have high blood pressure. And at least 1,000 deaths a day related to high blood pressure. But, you know, it's one of those silent things that we don't see. And I often wonder, how much do patients really thank their doctors for treating their high blood pressure? Well, they should thank them more because you're four times more likely to die from stroke if you have high blood pressure. You're three times more likely to die from heart disease if you have high blood pressure. So all of Dr. Kaminska's patients really need to get together and thank him. I think they should throw him a big party. I think he, he likes parties at the lake, by the way. Anyway, about half of people, only half of people with high blood pressure are adequately treated. Yeah, there's an increased risk of dementia and stroke, and the list just goes on and on and on. And there's at least 11 million Americans with high blood pressure who don't know they have it. You know, I spend a lot of time taking care of a pregnancy complication related to high blood pressure called preeclampsia. And it's interesting, like some of the research that you were talking about, it used to be called toxemia because there was this feeling that a toxin was floating around in the pregnant woman's body. And then later we became so sophisticated we called it preeclampsia. So what's post-eclampsia? <laughs> well, it's eclampsia. That's when the mother has a seizure. So oh, preeclampsia is on the way. But now we know, generations, centuries later, that there probably is some toxin floating around uh, in the bloodstream. And so oh. our, the, the founding fathers of medicine were not that far off when they called it toxemia. Do they have an idea what that toxin is? You know, it has to do with the placenta and prostaglandin production. It's really very complicated and fascinating. Very good, like much of medicine. Well, before we go to our guest, Dr. Kaminskis, we have a question. Our medical trivia question of the day, and it's this. Based on 2015 data from the NCD Risk Factor Collaboration, is high blood pressure more prevalent in wealthier countries or less affluent countries? In other words, hypertension is often thought to be a disease of the wealthy or the affluent. But is this true? Stay tuned toward the end of the show for the answer and come back and listen to more Dr. Doctor coming to you from the studios of Redeemer Radio. Welcome back to Dr. Doctor, where now we get to interview our guest, Dr. Dave Kaminskis, about high blood pressure. Dave is a cardiologist who has been with the Lutheran Medical Group in Fort Wayne, Indiana for over 35 years. His undergrad degree is in mechanical engineering, which probably gave him some insight into the fluid mechanics and dynamics of blood pressure. He did all of his medical training at Ohio State University, being released from there after, what, 10 years of servitude. He's an investigator on over 25 cardiology-related clinical research studies. He's the author of The Catholic Doctor is in monthly column in today's Catholic, the diocesan newspaper in Fort Wayne, South Bend. And he's the treasurer of the Northeast Indiana Catholic Medical Guild. Dave, welcome to Dr. Doctor. Thank you so much for having me. 
Yeah, Dave, we're so happy to have you. Our listeners recognize you and your voice probably from uh, your your work here on Redeemer Radio with Faith and Medicine and some of the great work that you've done there. So you're a familiar sound to all of us. So let's talk about blood pressure. Well, first of all, you can measure blood pressure in various parts of the body, can't you? Uh, yes, you can. Uh, you know, it's been traditional, though, to take the blood pressure in the arm, but the blood pressure you can be t- taken in the in the leg as well. I do not recommend taking it around the neck, though. <laughs> I wonder what could happen. We'll have to have that conversation offline. But I do remember that in looking at people with, um, quote, hardening of the arteries or narrowing of the arteries in the thighs and legs, that sometimes they will do a blood pressure in a leg. Oh, yes, absolutely. There's reason sometimes not to do a blood pressure in the arms, for example, and you can get an accurate blood pressure in the leg. But uh, the problem is, is that some people have vascular disease, especially to the leg. So you might get a lot lower blood pressure in the leg of somebody that has cholesterol blockage in the arteries going to the leg. So Dave, if, as we think about blood pressure, and you see it every day, does blood pressure change if you're really short, really tall? Uh, if you're really young, really old, how does natural blood pressure change in those situations, or does it? Yeah, well, it has nothing to do with, with height, but certainly it has a fair amount to do with age. Uh, the younger the person, the lower the blood pressure. There are many people in their 20s, for example, that their normal blood pressure might be 95 systolic, but that would be rare to find somebody in their 80s or 90s that still have a blood pressure that low. So as you grow older, your blood pressure kind of naturally rises as the blood vessels get a little bit stiffer. So now, Dave, you said systolic, and in the earlier segment, Tom and I talked about systolic and diastolic. That's the top number. Yes. Uh, give us a real appreciation for what the top number and the bottom number is supposed to be because uh, the gold standard has changed, and it can be a little confusing. Yeah, it's really gotten a lot tighter over the years as far as uh, picking a blood pressure that's lower. Uh, the, the the goal now is 120 over 80, and when you're in the 120 to 130 range, it's really kind of a pre-hypertension situation, and then now 130s and above is considered high blood pressure. Now, do you recommend to your patients and to the public in general that they get their own blood pressure cuff and take their blood pressure regularly, or is seeing your primary care physician once a year is that enough in terms of monitoring blood pressure? Yeah, people that have poorly controlled blood pressure or just high blood pressure in general, I really encourage them to go ahead and get their own automated blood pressure cuff at home. There can be a big difference sometimes at the home blood pressures versus the doctor's office as well. So, yes, I think I think people in general should do that. Now, is there anything listeners should know if they want to rush out today or rush online today and buy a blood pressure cuff? Is there anything you'd want them to know about what to buy, what not to buy? I would just recommend kind of the middle of the road price for a cuff that goes around your arm. And what would middle of the road be? Probably something like 40 or $50. Now, Dave, how do we know what normal is? What defines normal with regard to blood pressure? Well, lots of studies have been done over the years to try to figure out what is the best blood pressure to reduce the chance of stroke and heart attack and other uh, morbidity, mortality type situations. So um, it's basically been found, uh, study after study, the, the lower the blood pressure, the better. And now it looks like for most people, having it at, at the 120 or a little bit below range actually is the sweet spot, especially a sweet spot for, for example, if you have diabetes uh, uh, you really want that blood pressure well controlled. But can't blood pressure be too low also? Yes, it can. And if you look at some of the elderly patients, I definitely let my elderly patients run higher. Um, for example, if you're 90 years old, most are not going to feel very good with a blood pressure of 105, where somebody in their 20s or 30s or 40s likely will feel fine. So I do give some leeway to the older patients. They need to perfuse their brain and not feel fatigued and lightheaded. So in a 90-year-old, I wouldn't feel bad about accepting a blood pressure of 140. Now, it makes sense that low blood pressure might make someone, particularly an elderly person, feel poorly. But a little bit of myth-busting, can we tell if our blood pressure is elevated by the way we feel? Most of the time, the answer is no. Mm. I mean, most people have no idea, and that's why it's called the silent killer. Right. I mean, I hear that a lot in my patients. They say, I, I know my blood pressure is normal. I feel fine. But that's just not correct, is it? No, it's not correct. Although sometimes at work when I get stressed out, I can feel mine going up. <laughs> so. <laughs> so elevated blood pressure puts more pressure, uh, so to speak, on the vascular walls 
uh, the arteries in particular, and stretches them to some degree. Why does that matter? What's what's the big deal with stretching the vessels like that? Yeah, constant high blood pressure on the vessels starts damaging the vessels, and uh, the, the lining of the vessel is called the endothelium, and they can start becoming damaged there. But for chronic high blood pressure over the, the long term, even like the, the big vessel, the aorta, it can start stretching and and we see people that actually get aortic aneurysms, for example, because they have uncontrolled high blood pressure. So it's the aneurysm's like, like a, a balloon in the wall of the artery. Exactly. And then even a worse complication is what's called an aortic dissection. We almost never see an aortic dissection, which is a rip in the aorta, unless somebody has high blood pressure. And that can be a fatal event, even just minutes after it starts, it can be all over. I remember once when asking you this question about why, you know, stretching the walls is a big deal. You, you pointed me in another direction, though, that the only problem isn't in the walls of the vessel, but it's also in the organ that's getting blood. What happens there with high blood pressure? Absolutely. And organ damage is what we call it. And just think about the heart. Uh, the, the heart's a lot happier pumping blood against a pressure of 110 or 120. If your blood pressure is 150 or 160, the heart has to work harder. The heart gets thick or hypertrophied because it has to work harder. And eventually, you can actually get some heart damage. Uh, because a, then the heart has more volume and muscle and needs more blood itself in the coronary arteries that give blood to the heart muscle. Exactly. You can start having areas of the heart muscle that become ischemic, which means there's not enough oxygen getting to the heart muscle. And if there's more pressure, that heart has got to squeeze harder in order to move blood around, doesn't it? Exactly. And a certain disease processes, take congestive heart failure. Just think of a weakened heart. Boy, it's a lot happier pushing the blood around if it's 110 as opposed to 140. So, Dave, what's the problem? Say you're talking about end organ damage, so like kidneys, liver, brain. So what's the problem if you're pushing a higher pressure of blood into those organs? Well, so... One of the most common causes of kidney failure leading to dialysis is high blood pressure because the kidney cells themselves get damaged. Uh, and eventually, through blood tests, you can just watch the kidneys get, get more and more damaged over the years. And then what my patients would consider the worst complications uh, would be stroke. And that is it damages the blood vessels in the brain. Uh, and eventually, uh, you can either have blockage or you can have even something that is is catastrophic, and that is a hemorrhagic stroke where the blood vessel actually bursts in the brain and, and you have a big stroke. So is the end organ damage because you're damaging the tiny blood vessels in those organs or you're actually damaging the organ tissue itself? Both. Okay. Well, let's move on to to solving this problem, if you will. So um, we've all heard it said for years, you can lower your blood pressure by doing this or doing that, by exercising. Give us sort of the lowdown on what can somebody do outside of, you know, medications. We'll talk about those in a minute. But what can someone do to uh, naturally, if you will, lower their blood pressure? Yeah, there, there really are a number of things you can do. For example, if you're overweight, lose the weight. I've had patients that were 50 pounds or let's even say 100 pounds, and if they really take it seriously, they can lower their blood pressure a lot with weight loss. So do you mean getting close, as close as possible to their ideal weight? Yeah, basically, exactly. Uh, so if you have high blood pressure, you want to lose some weight if you're overweight. And then salt restriction. The countries and the people eat the most salt have the most high blood pressure, so you definitely want to watch the salt. Um, other things that can raise the, the blood pressure include uh, smoking, and lots of caffeine consumption um, and uh, lack of exercise. I mean, if you're sedentary, you actually tend to run a higher blood pressure. It's, that seems counterintuitive, doesn't it? seems like if you just sat around on the couch, your blood pressure would be really low. Yeah, well, while you're exercising, you're actually kind of uh, conditioning the blood vessels some to expand and, and do the thing they're supposed to do, relax. And then when you get done with exercise, your blood pressure actually comes down over the next 30 minutes, and it's actually lower than when you started. You told me that before, and I tried it out this week, and sure enough, it lowered about 20 points. I had one of the happiest blood pressures about two <laughs> hours after exercising. It was a wonderful thing, Dave. Thank yeah. you. Yeah, you're welcome. <laughs> now, uh, I operate on patients every day at work and take their blood pressure beforehand. And, you know, sometimes it's, it's incredibly high. You know, and it brings up the topic of white coat hypertension. You know, patients who are in the presence of physicians and their blood pressure goes up. And they'll say, oh, my blood pressure is usually normal at home. How important is the fact that their blood pressure rises in the office? Is it something to ignore? 
I'm so happy you asked that because recent scientific information does tell us that those people that are always high in the office actually are at higher risk for heart attack and stroke. So it, it's it's you know that's happening at other times uh, when they get into uh, an argument with somebody or a tough day at work. You can bet that their blood pressure is too high if they get scared just seeing a doctor in the office. So I thought this was just a gift that I possessed that when I walked in, <laughs> when I walked into the room, my patient's blood pressure skyrockets. But it's there's other people besides me that uh, yeah, there, there's 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 plenty. But but I have in recent years begun to counsel those patients that look. Uh, you can show me some pretty good blood pressures at home, but I still think that we need to get you on a little bit of something to try to temper some of these quick, sudden rises in blood pressure. So maybe that person walks around just really close to the edge, and a stressor, a life stressor, sends them over, and they get hypertensive right there. Exactly. But that's the that type of person that has just got to take their blood pressures at home. I mean, I, I have to get some idea as what are they running when they're home. Now, another myth-busting, I suppose, opportunity. Uh, you know, the high, um, high tension, uh, fast-moving, fast-talking. Well, let's take Dr. McGovern, for instance. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, where, where are we taking it? <laughs> that type of, you know, fast-moving, fast-talking, motivated uh, person, are they, much, are they more likely to be hypertensive than sort of the sloth who sits on the couch all day? <laughs> <laughs> Man, that's a tough question, but, but there, there actually is a little bit of data on, you know, type A personalities and, and, and people with high-powered jobs. But, you know, that sloth on the couch isn't exercising. He's probably eating a bag of chips, and his p- blood pressure is probably quite high. Uh, we sometimes call that skinny fat. Uh, <laughs> the, patient, the patient may not be overweight, but they're not healthy. Just because their weight may be good, they're not healthy. Exactly. Oh, that's a, that's an excellent point. Another practical question I wanted to ask is when patients go in for procedures that might involve a little bit of bleeding, how high of blood pressure is too high? Like when I'm operating on the face or someone's going to do a biopsy on the skin or something, what is too high to continue? Yeah, well, for a dermatologist, we're going to give you more slack. I, I, I would suggest to you that probably if somebody has a, a systolic blood pressure of 200 because they're scared, you can go ahead and still operate. But I ha- but if, if you're talking about a significant surgery and you have a systolic of 200, 210, 220, like you're going to get your, your gallbladder out or have some sort of a colon surgery, that's just too high. So, it, and, and then, you know, you, I get this asked all the time by patients, you know, when should I be so scared as to go to the emergency room? And Great you, point, you yes. Know, and in general, probably in the around 230 over 120. So if you're, if you're hitting around 230, that's dangerously high. Or if your diastolic's 120, you, you ought to head to the emergency room. Should they lay down first or lie down first and see if it goes down? Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, I, I always counsel them, okay, so go relax, take a couple more blood pressures, you know, and and see if the blood pressure will come down on its own. And I have lots of my patients that are on two or three blood pressure meds have a plan to take an extra pill if their blood pressure spikes. So I give them some leeway to try to prevent that emergency room visit. Well, let's move on to medicine. So we talked about weight loss and smoking, alcohol, and exercise. Let's say we try those things and either we fail at them uh, or um, we do all of those things and their blood pressure stays up. How do you approach that as a cardiologist to pick a medicine or medicines? Tell us, tell us how you think through that. Well, uh, in general, the it, it's it's recommended. There's three classes of blood pressure medicines that we first start with, and and one of the first classes we use is called ACE inhibitors or ARBs, which goes angiotensin receptor blockers, and these are medicines basically that block some of the hormones the kidney puts out and lowers the blood pressure that way. And then a second class is called calcium channel blockers. The most common one used is amlodipine, used to be known as Norvasc, and it's a very effective medicine. And and that works more directly on the blood vessels to kind of dilate and relax the blood vessels. And then the third class is usually diuretics, or what we call thiazide-like diuretics. And they're very mild diuretics that people take to take their blood volume down and get rid of some salt in their system. We're at the halfway point in our show. We're going to take a break and then be right back with some details about those medications here on Dr. Doctor with Dr. Dave Kaminskis. 
We're back, and you're listening to Dr. Doctor from the studios of Redeemer Radio with our hypertension, high blood pressure expert, Dr. Dave Gomenskis. And, you know, as I listen and I think about it, before we move on to more medications, let's take a step back and focus a little bit more on some of the uh, things that we can control and do uh, before we get to or need medications. Uh, and I mentioned alcohol, but we should probably pause a minute and talk a little bit more in detail about alcohol consumption and its effects on high blood pressure. Yeah, when, when I see a patient, I always take a diet history and alcohol history, and daily alcohol consumption that is significant does raise the blood pressure and and can be the answer for some people. If I have a gentleman... The answer meaning if you cut back in alcohol, it'll be the answer for the high blood pressure, not to all of life's problems. (laughs) Exactly. Thank you, Dr. McGovern. (laughs) So um, it's not uncommon for me to find out that, yeah, every day I get home from work and I like to have three or four beers every night, you know, and I get this a lot. And say, well, you know, if you would not drink those three or four beers, we may not need to put you on medicine for your high blood pressure. So uh, that's definitely one thing you can do. Now, drinking a couple glasses of wine a week or three or four glasses of wine a week uh, rarely is going to cause an increased blood pressure. But daily drinking certainly can. So is the red wine lobby similar to the milk lobby in that uh, the industry has just convinced us that if we drank red wine, we are the picture of health because that's good for you, right? Well, it is true that red wine has the inside track as far as probably the best alcohol to drink, but it's not um, not by a lot. The truth is, is that a little bit of alcohol, you know, what we call in moderation, is usually a healthy thing. And so two, three, four drinks a week is, is a nice sweet spot. You, you can get some benefit, though, from from a couple beers a week or or even a, a couple mixed drinks a week. But again, if you look at the whole situation, if you have heart failure or you have high blood pressure, you really should be cutting back on the alcohol and, and in some situations, just none at all. Well, let's move on to another common myth, I think, or misunderstanding anyway, and that's salt. What's the story with salt and high blood pressure? Yeah. Well, a lot of studies have been done, and, and it's absolutely true that, that salt pushes the blood pressure up. And if you have the genetics for high blood pressure, which so many people do, I mean, if your mom and dad had high blood pressure, you have a much higher chance of having high blood pressure. So you need to be more, you know, more, you need to look at your salt intake on a daily basis. So, you know, three or four grams of salt is a reasonable amount. If, if you really want to get tight on the salt, down to maybe two grams a day. It's difficult to do, though, for many people. But if you just look at some of the meals out there, um, I can tell you a story about uh, uh, a, a, a wonderful elderly lady that uh, we had in the hospital for heart failure. And she went home, and the very next day her family thought they would give her a nice treat and take her to Kentucky Fried Chicken. And she had a meal there, and that evening she came in in heart failure again. And I decided to check and see how much salt she had eaten, and it was eight grams of salt in one meal. So you got to watch the fast foods, and when you go to restaurants, what happens there? They want the, they want you to enjoy your food, and they salt it. So eating out is a problem for people that have high blood pressure or for heart failure. you got to know how much salt's in the food. I think Chris has a uh, rule of thumb he uses for his patients with high blood pressure. Yeah, I usually tell pregnant patients if it comes in paper, plastic, or a can, it probably has more sodium than you need. That's probably not all, but at least it's a place to start thinking about salt. But I think your restaurant lesson is a good one to remember. I wouldn't have thought of that intuitively. Oh, yeah. They're very motivated to make things taste as flavorful as they possibly can. Yes, and I, I I find patients sometimes say, you know, we go out to eat every night. You know, some of the re- retired uh, oh, couples, yeah. that's just their routine, you know. They go out to eat every night and, you know. They're probably yeah. consuming a lot of sodium yes. without even realizing. Yeah, and, and the other the other uh, area is soups. Soups have a lot of salt. They come in cans. And that's, you you know, you told me this recently, and I have a can of soup every day for lunch at work, and I checked how much is in there. It's like 1,300 milligrams. And look at that. If you have two two cans of soup a day, you should be done with your sodium intake, you see? Right. I I do one can a day, thank you. But yes, that's a lot of sodium. So I'm going to have to find some low-sodium soup that tastes like 
low sodium soup. Now, are there some people <laughs> that are just sensitive to the sodium and other people who could eat that amount of sodium and not have high blood pressure? Yeah, absolutely. And, 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 and most of that, I think, is, again, genetic. If you've if you got a strong family history, then, you know, when you get up in your 30s and 40s and 50s, you, you better start watching your salt. You know, m- most people aren't going to get high blood pressure in their 20s. But, you know, uh, I do see people referred to me 24, 26, 28 years old. It's, it's amazing. Already with high blood pressure. So you mentioned genetics. Are there any certain ethnicities or ethnic groups that should be thinking more and worried more about high blood pressure than others? Oh, that's a great question. Uh, the African-American population wins on high blood pressure. They have more high blood pressure, and, and they are very responsive to salt as well. So so they can really help treat their high blood pressure with salt restriction. But the truth is, is that it just as a population, they have a higher incidence of high blood pressure. So is it genetics, behavior, a mixture? It, it's a mixture. It's a mixture. But it, but it has a lot to do with genetics for sure. Wow, interesting stuff. I mean, um, if you had to know one thing about a patient and to assess their overall health, uh, would you pick blood pressure or would you pick something else? As a, as a way to say that person's healthy or not healthy? Well, that's another interesting question. You know, blood pressure is very important. But uh, I, I think from a cardiologist standpoint, exercise tolerance, if if I ask the question, can you go out and just, just walk comfortably for 15 minutes? And I, you, you'd be surprised how many patients say, oh, I haven't walked 15 minutes in the last year, you know. Uh, so exercise tolerance is probably the thing that clues me in the most. But if you have somebody has a blood pressure 160, 170, I mean, you really need to get on it. And, and, and they're at high risk for lots of bad things to happen. Well, let's bring it back to the medications. What should our patients, our listeners, know about these medications? Well, uh, after you've done all the things you can do, it's time to start medications. And you should not be reluctant to because of all the benefits of lowering the blood pressure. So you pick one of the classes we talked about, either an ACE inhibitor, A or B, or maybe the, the calcium channel blocker, the diuretic. It's, it's kind of up to your doctor, and it, it, it kind of depends on the patient on which one that I would pick. Um, the angiotensin receptor blockers tend to have very low incidence of side effects, and so that has been a favorite of many doctors. Okay, uh, But ACE inhibitors are generic. They're safe. They work well. So give us a couple of names that listeners would recognize for ACE inhibitors that, that are commonly used. Yeah, so... Common ones would include lisinopril, okay, or another tr- a trade name one uh, that, that we use a fair amount of is Altase, and, uh, or uh, Analopril, which is the trade name is Vasotec. Those are very common ACE inhibitors. Now, when I give an ACE inhibitor to a person, uh, they most of them really like it because it, most of them cost about four bucks a month. But I always tell them that there is a ten percent chance of a side effect, and it's an irritating dry cough. Interestingly, happens more in women than in men. So I, I tend to avoid ACE inhibitors in women just because I don't want that phone call a month later that says, I'm coughing my brains out. You know, so um, that's so a very good So would an ACE inhibitor like those you mentioned, would that be a very common first step for Absolutely. your average hypertensive patient? Yes, very common first step. And, 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 you know, right there with it, though, would be amlodipine, which is a calcium channel blocker. It's also very cheap and effective and, and uh, very potent, actually. Uh, and uh, I, I, I usually go with either an ACE or an ARB or, or amlodipine, to be honest with you. Uh, very effective. The number one side effect of amlodipine is ankle swelling, some puffiness in the ankles. And, and you know, there's plenty of people that don't appreciate that. Now, I would say it's probably at the usual dose we give, it's 10%. But we should probably point out that's not the lower extremity swelling that we see in heart failure patients. Exactly, exactly. So I get I get calls and I always tell my patients so I don't get the call usually but 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 if they I get calls from people that have put been put on amlodipine by their family doctor and they say I'm going into heart failure and I said, "Well, have, has there been any medication changes recently?" Yes, I was just put on amlodipine 3 weeks ago. I say, "Oh, you know, it's it's just the medicine. You know, maybe we need to pick something else." Now, you know, I I would say in my practice, I tend to take care of people that tend to be resistant to wanting to start a medication that that are really just want to approach things from a more natural non-medical way. But it's interesting and you alluded to this you're trying to balance risks, aren't you? 
you know, taking a medication, certainly it could have side effects and those problems. But what we probably discount is the other side of that coin, where not treating your high blood pressure, that's going to cause you problems either now or later in life. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I always give the patient an opportunity to do lifestyle changes, but I, I usually am disappointed. I, I'm thrilled when somebody comes back in and they started exercise and they've lost 20 pounds. But sometimes what I'll do is I'll say, okay, I'm going to put you on this medicine, and if you can show me blood pressures that are under 120 because you've changed your lifestyle, I'll withdraw it, and we'll see how you do. So I, I give them kind of a little little carrot that maybe if they do some things right, uh, we can actually get them off the medicine. But in general, you know, most of my patients are not going to change their lifestyle enough to lower their blood pressure. I just realized there's another chemical that we missed, uh, and that's caffeine. What, yeah. what does that do with blood pressure? Yeah, well, it, you know, overloading with caffeine raises the blood pressure. I think I might have mentioned smoking does too. Uh, two caffeinated beverages per day will rarely raise the blood pressure enough to worry about. But, uh, you know, I, I can't tell you how many times I find out that somebody drinks six or eight cups of coffee per day or maybe a six-pack of Mountain Dew, for example. It's not uncommon. Does sugar affect the blood pressure or is it more the caffeine? Yeah, I... I I've seen no data to support that, that sugar alone is going to raise the blood pressure. Another thing that I, we commonly hear is, I don't want to start a blood pressure medicine because I'll have to take it the rest of my life. Help us understand uh, what, what that means exactly. Yeah, I get that all the time. And that's, you know, again, that's why you can kind of give them lifestyle changes that they can do. But if they've done, if they've done the best they can with weight loss and exercise and everything else, uh, I, I just tell them, listen, you really need to be on a medicine. And yes, it's true. You'll probably never get off of it. We can always change it if you have trouble. I'm doing this to help you, not to hurt you. And I always tell them, if you feel worse on this medicine, we'll pick another one. You know, but if I have to convince somebody uh, to take a medicine, uh, usually I go to the stroke. And, and it means meaning people are so scared of having a stroke that I say, look, your risk of having stroke is dramatically higher if we don't control your blood pressure. And that always usually gets their attention. What about the fact that some of the medicines you give a third class are the, the water pills, the diuretics? Aren't they going to make people go to the bathroom day and night? Yeah, the diuretics we use are actually very mild, and they're, they're, they're the thiazide-like diuretics. Uh, I'll name a couple. Hydrochlorothiazide seems to be the favorite in the United States. One that's actually more effective is called chlorothalidone. And if you're on these diuretics for a week or two, maybe for that first week, you might notice a little bit more urination. But it, it, when you take it every day, you absolutely can't even tell. You do not go running to the bathroom. There's, we have stronger diuretics for heart failure that you take it, and within the next hour or two, you're running to the bathroom. But these mild diuretics, after they hit equilibrium, they do not make you pee more every day. So how do they work at lowering the blood pressure if it's not by making you pee all the time? Well, they, they lower your blood volume, and they basically get rid of salt in your system. So, so by always taking them, you're always a little bit lower in blood volume and salt, and then they, they kind of so work So initially, you'll urinate more, yeah, I always, but you'll just get to a lower volume yes, in your system. I always tell them, you know, you know, the first week or two, yes, you'll probably go to the bathroom more, but I'll bet you by the end of the month, it, you won't even notice, and, and I rarely I rarely get complaints about it. That's very practical information and brings us to the end of our third segment, but we'll be back to finish up more on Dr. Doctor. You're back with Dr. Doctor from the studios of Redeemer Radio, and we're joined by our guest, Dr. Dave Kaminskis. We've been talking about all things high blood pressure. We've talked about medications. We've talked about a lot of the, uh, the common issues uh, with high blood pressure. But now it's time to move on to our listeners' favorite thing, of course, and that is the answer <laughs> to our expertly posed medical trivia question. Which, of course, deals with the subject of the day, high blood pressure. So basically, is blood pressure higher in wealthier countries or in less affluent countries. You know, Dave tried to give away the answer earlier. He mentioned something about salt-consuming countries uh, and, and blood pressure. But that's not the answer. And he also mentioned that African Americans have higher blood pressure. It's interesting, looking on this map, African uh, countries have higher blood pressure than Western countries. So the answer to the question is that 
It's not true that affluent or wealthy countries have higher blood pressures than less affluent countries. So on this graph here, the countries with the lowest blood pressure, South Korea, Canada, United States, Britain, the highest are like uh, Niger, India, Nigeria, Croatia. So uh, it's fascinating. You know, Tom, I wonder if that has to do with higher, more affluent countries probably, presumably, have better access to medications and to medical care. So if we surveyed blood pressures, they would be better, whereas in less affluent countries, maybe high blood pressure is not getting treated. I just wonder. That could be. I don't know. Does our guest have any insight into this? Uh, I, I think it has a lot to do with genetics, and especially in the African countries. They, they just run higher blood pressure. I, I, just, you know, I think that's the main answer. But certainly access to, to good medical care is how you prevent all these complications from high blood pressure. You know, I think this graph is interesting. We'll try to add it, listeners, to uh, our Facebook page if you want to find it. Um, but it's an interesting graph, and you might be surprised at where some of the countries fall out uh, on their likelihood to have a high blood pressure or not. Well, we move on from that kind of fun to a little more information from our guest. Well, we could call this, Dave, the Catholic guilt segment, perhaps. Um, Help us understand, uh, is there a uniquely Catholic perspective when it comes to high blood pressure? Well, uh, I think all good Catholics need their their daily prayer. And studies have been shown to uh, that you can lower your blood pressure with quiet meditation. Sometimes there's feedback mechanisms at uh, some fancy machines, which I don't really recommend. I think finding yourself a, a quiet place in the morning or evening or both and doing some prayer time will lower your blood pressure. And I think that's really been proven in scientific studies. Yeah, I thought for a second you were going to say all good Catholics need their red wine. So I'm glad we cleared that up earlier in an earlier segment. Yeah, I think I'd go with prayer. (laughs) (laughs) What about this principle of we don't have the right to mistreat this body that we've been given? Uh, Ignoring our blood pressure, ignoring our health, ignoring our diabetes if we have it. Um, that really that really is sinful because it's saying this gift that I've been given is not worth uh, caring for. Yes, I mean, the, the gift of life, the gift of having the opportunity to serve on earth, we really need to take care of our health and our bodies so we can accomplish, you know, what we're supposed to accomplish for God. So uh, I, really, I really look at it as a challenge. You know, if you can keep your health the best you can, and, and certainly— you know, you don't have total control, but you have some control. And so working hard to keep your, your bodies healthy so you can do the work of God, I think, is very important. And uh, Dave, you take care of people at the end of life. Uh, and we've talked about that on other shows before. But I would be willing to bet patients on their deathbed don't tell you they wish they'd worked harder or longer. Oh, yes. Yeah, there's no question about it. Uh, uh, stories I have uh, that I've that I can share in some other segment about end-of-life care. But certainly, uh, people at the end of life, they just want to embrace what they've done over their life and want to be proud of it and serve God. Well, let's move on. We've had some questions from listeners posed to us, and we have the chance to answer two of them today. Uh, Both Dave and Chris will answer one. I'm going to pose one to Dave, and that is, Someone notes that many teens are now vaping or jeweling. In fact, yesterday I had a patient who said, yeah, I'm trying to to switch from smoking to vaping because I hear it's healthier for me. Well, what is the difference between vaping and smoking? Well, unfortunately, you know, seven or eight years ago, I thought maybe vaping was going to end up being uh, a heck of a lot better. But it turns out even recently the Surgeon General put out a warning that, that they're really seeing the same stuff, lung problems, uh, pushing the blood pressure up, uh, and there is, there just isn't a, a great reward for vaping. It really hurts your health. I mean, we thought, I guess everyone thought, well, we're getting rid of, you know, the, the carbon monoxide and the smoking part. It's somehow going to be better for the lungs. But the reason people are doing it is access to the drug nicotine, right? Yeah, that's true. Now, time will tell whether or not we're going to see less cancers. I suspect there will be less cancers, but there's still plenty of other bad things that go along, you know, with vaping. And cancer isn't the number one killer in the country, is it? No, it's not. It's heart disease. So parents should be just as worried about their children vaping or juuling as they would if they were smoking cigarettes. Totally agree. On to another part of the body. 
How do you use natural family planning if you have irregular periods, writes one listener. It's not worked for me because I'm so irregular. I've got four kids. I want to be responsible with how many kids I have while still following my beliefs about the evils of contraception. Chris, how do you respond to someone like that? Yeah, that's a great question. A lot of people think they can't use a fertility awareness method or natural family planning because their periods, their cycles are irregular. Uh, when in fact, that's actually a perfect reason to use natural family planning, particularly the Creighton method, which is what uh, I work with and use. And it, it really excels when things are tricky like that with, with irregular cycles. So that is a bit of folklore. I also think it's interesting that you know, the, the listener is is concerned and wants to be responsible with how many kids. I mean, it's just so prevailing, this idea um, that we get from the world that having more than 2.5 children is somehow irresponsible. Uh, and it gets to some of the folklore that you and I have talked about before about world population and, and some of those issues. But uh, back to the listener's question, if you want to use a fertility awareness method, that is to say natural family planning, you can do that and be successful. I have patients who have breast cancer, who take uh, medications that cause birth defects, all sorts of reasons not to be pregnant, and they can use an FP and trust it and use it well uh, if that's what they desire to do. So uh, fear not. If you have irregular cycles, you can be faithful to the teaching of the evils of contraception um, and still uh, plan your family the way that you care to. Dave, we neglected to give our listeners advice on where they can go for more helpful information on the topic of hypertension. Well, there's a, a number of websites that you can go to. Uh, one of my favorites is the is acc.org, which is the American College of Cardiology. That is the organization that kind of guides cardiologists through the country uh, on on different guidelines. So uh, I would suggest going there. And then our friends at uh, Mayo Clinic, uh, they have a wonderful website. That's the mayoclinic.org. And, and you can read about hypertension there as well. Is there anything about high blood pressure we haven't covered that you want to make sure listeners know? Well, as I see patients with high blood pressure, sometimes I'll, I'll run across a patient that tells me, you know, I've been on three different blood pressure medicines and my doctor just can't control my blood pressure. But then I, but then I find out they get put on a blood pressure medicine and it, it doesn't quite get their blood pressure down to normal. So they're taken off the medicine and put on another one. And then that one doesn't quite get it there either. And then they put on a third one. And what I, what I think the listener should know is that blood pressure medicine should be additive. If, if you're on a blood pressure medicine and you're tolerating it and it lowered your blood pressure 5 or 10 or 12 points and it's not where it needs to be, then you need another one. I would have to say that more than half the patients I take care of with high blood pressure are on three medicines. And, and it's not uncommon to even be on four in my practice. So, so um, if you have a doctor that keeps on flipping medicines one at a time, um, you know, maybe you need to uh, discuss your high blood pressure with a specialist. Dave, we want to move on to uh, a little public service announcement here. As our listeners probably know, we're all members of the Catholic Medical Association. We have an annual conference every year. And this year's conference is in a beautiful location, both beautiful with sights and sounds. And that's uh, Nashville, Tennessee, September 26th to 28th at the Gaylord Opryland Hotel. The theme this year is Physician Heal Thyself, Living a Fulfilled Life in Medicine. And speakers will talk about, you know, the crisis of physicians, and not only physicians, but nurses and all healthcare workers with professional burnout, you know, the spiritual, physical, financial, and mental consequences of it. We even get Christian music artist Matt Maher to provide praise and worship music Friday evening during this. And if you want more information, uh, we encourage not only physicians, but other healthcare professionals and even interested lay people uh, will find the talks to be fascinating. And you can go to cathmed.org, that's C-A-T-H-M-E-D.org. But Dave, you attended last year for your first time. What did you experience? It was, uh, it was much better than I thought it would ever be. Uh, I'd been asked to go many times, and, and my schedule just didn't permit it, or something always was going on. Or maybe I just made too many excuses. That could be it, too. <laughs> so... So last year I went to Dallas and I decided to, to take my, my wife with me, who is not in the medical profession, 
and it was so wonderful. Uh, the first thing that impressed me was the very first day. Um, it starts with a mass, and every day starts with a mass. And um, I was wondering how many people would get up at 7 a.m. when they're kind of on vacation, if you will, to, to attend mass. And it was probably 90% of all the participants were there. There was hardly a seat to be found. There were a dozen priests celebrating Mass, uh, wonderful sermons. Uh, it, it, that's how we started our day. And then talk after talk was, was inspiring. There was always, uh, you know, always something to learn spiritually, but, but certainly a lot to, to, to learn about medicine as well. Uh, and it was, it was just a fabulous time uh, to finally be at the National Conference. And you're going to be back this year, right? Absolutely. In fact, this time my wife said we're going, and so uh, she. And so I, I want to talk about that, and that is that uh, it's just not for medical personnel. She was engaged with every talk that she went to, uh, and and was inspired. And I can still remember her saying when we got done, it was so nice to be with other people that think just like us, faithful Catholics in the medical profession. Uh, it was just a wonderful thing. And she met new friends, and, and uh, it was Dave, just a great time. Dave, thank you so much for being here. Thank you, listeners, for being with us for another episode of Dr. Doctor, the official radio program and podcast of the Catholic Medical Association, brought to you from the studios of Redeemer Radio on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Please share the good news of Dr. Doctor with a friend. Invite them to listen to past episodes on iTunes or Google Play Podcasts. And be sure to tune in next week for your appointment with Dr. Doctor, where we'll be discussing foot and ankle injuries with orthopedic surgeon Dr. Paul Brayden. This is Dr. Tom McGovern. And I'm Dr. Chris Stroud, signing off until your next dose of Dr. Doctor. Dr. Doctor is the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association, whose members are dedicated to upholding the principles of the Catholic faith in the science and practice of medicine. The views expressed on Dr. Doctor do not necessarily represent those of your co-host or the Catholic Medical Association. Have a question for our doctors or a topic you'd like to hear about? Call or text your question to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598 or fill out the form at RedeemerRadio.com doctor where you can also find all our past episodes. Keep up with the latest from Dr. Doctor by subscribing in your favorite podcast app or by following us on Facebook at Dr. Doctor Show.